Hey guys, before we get started this week, I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you that downloads each week, uh, rates, reviews, subscribed, lets a friend know. Uh, this is the two-year anniversary of the podcast. Cannot believe all of the amazing people that I've had on this podcast. And uh, so thanks for two years, and here's too many more. This is Talk To Me, the podcast that gives you rants, anecdotes, and interviews with people from hardcore to hair metal. And now your hosts... Joshua Toomey and John Drake. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Talk To Me. This is episode 116. Guest this week is John Connolly of Seven Dust, and he will be on to talk about his new band, Projected. As always, I am your host, Joshua Toomey, joined this week by... Well, we're not joined this week by John Drake. His voice is shot. He did some singing over the uh, Labor Day weekend with his band, Brother Believe Me, and uh, Brother Believe Me, we tried to do this episode on Monday, and his voice was shot. So I brought in a special co-host this week, Mark Striegel of the Talking Metal Podcast will be on momentarily. I'm going to bust through the... Uh, iTunes review and the shout outs for sharing and then get Mark on the line. So, all right, the nice five-star iTunes review this week is from our good friends, the Decibel Geek Podcast. Got to thank those guys for not only the Rock and Pod Expo, but uh, for being a supporter of this podcast. Uh, I just noticed in my memories a year ago, I was on their podcast talking Metallica. Uh, so I guess it's been a year now. So fellas, I think it's time to have me back on. But uh, this is a nice five-star review. It's just called uh, This Podcast Rocks. And it starts out, This Podcast Rocks. Don't ask me to tell you anything else. Just know that this podcast rocks. <laughs> uh, I, you know what? I, it, I've read this a couple times and didn't get it, but there's an inside joke in there that I just now figured out. So thank you. Thank you, Chris Sinzak of the Dustable Geek Podcast for saying that this podcast rocks. And if you want to own your iTunes review read on the podcast, head over to your iTunes, leave a nice five-star rating, nice five-star review, and it will be read on an upcoming episode. And we also like to do shout-outs for sharing, and that is shout-outs for sharing on Facebook and Twitter. So for sharing the David Vincent, formerly of Morbid Angel, now of I Am Morbid, uh, doing his Outlaw Country Project and Headcat. Man, this one got a lot of traction. Cool, cool, awesome blabbermouth headline. Probably one of my favorite that uh, that Bori has done so far. So once again, uh, thank you to Bori and Blabbermouth for posting it. And to these fine gentlemen and ladies. I would say ladies, but looks like a nice sausage fest in the uh, shoutouts for sharing this week. Uh, Chris Sinzak, the aforementioned Chris Sinzak. Gary Schaller, AC, that is at AAULT1 on Twitter. Discography discussion. Uh, MDG Rock Photography for your gravel photo needs. Kenneth Waugh, Joel Baggett, Daniel Shapu, Eric Moore of the Saturday Night Jam Session Podcast, which I heard is coming back. It's going to make a comeback. Episode 10 will finally come out. Eric Moore and the Saturday Night Jam Session Podcast are the Vinnie Vincent of podcasts. They do a couple episodes, get a little bit of fandom, and then go away for a very long time. So the, the buildup is here for you, Eric, so you better put out a damn fine product. <laughs> Mark Scar, Scott Sullivan, Shane A. Hebert, I Am Morbid fan page shared it. Got to thank those guys. Morbid Angels Twitter retweeted it, which is kind of odd because David Vincent is no longer in it. David Vincent himself 
posted it on Facebook. Uh, got a shout out to Ear Peeler. Thank you, Vic. Metal News with a Z. Metalhead TV. Sign of the Metal Horn Emoji. And last but not least, got in under the wire. Mr. Sonny Pooney, who I met at the Nashville Rock and Pot Expo over the uh, over the weekend, over a couple of weekends ago. Can't believe it's almost been two weeks now since that uh, since all that happened. Um, if you guys have noticed, I've been posting some of the interviews from the Nashville Rock and Pot Expo. I don't know that I can uh, post any more. I've got one more that I'm going to try to salvage, but uh, I, I think I had at one point just put the recorder down. I'd actually, in all honesty, here's what happened. I had. Uh, Chris Senzak asked me if I he could use my Zoom recorder to tape the uh, live podcast, and I said sure. So in that in my mind, that uh, means no interviews for the day. So I start to drink, and I start to drink, <laughs> and then I did the uh, the drunken lullabies podcast. So all we did on that podcast was drink, and the beers kept flowing. Uh, Ian Wadley of the Rock and Metal Combat podcast uh, kept tossing me beers all day, and so by the time. Uh, I talked to Toby Wright during the day and said that I had asked him to be on the podcast a long time ago, hadn't heard anything about it, but I didn't really necessarily know he was going to come over and record with me. I mean, I'm sure I said, hey, you know, stop by and record. I didn't know he would take me up on the offer. And so when he did, um, I I was kind of, I wasn't very prepared. (laughs) I wasn't necessarily prepared yet. So we sat down and uh, and did the interview. I listened back and I was like, wow, am I saying, and just for all? But uh, yeah, so so listening back, um, I put out the Dead by Wednesday. Steve from Skin Lab episode tried tried to doctor those up as much as I can. Um, I've got the Kenny Olson of uh, formerly of Kid Rock's band. Um, we talked for like forty five minutes, so I'm sure I'm going to cut that down to about twenty and try to take out all the babbling that I did. But uh, but another guy that I talked to at the Rock and Pot Expo, I had been on the. Um, Podcasters Summit on the Classic Metal Show, along with Mark Striegel. Uh, finally got to meet Mark Striegel in person at the Rock and Pod Expo. Uh, woke up the next day to a nice message from him saying that, you know, you, nice to meet me, blah, blah, blah. Which, in these circles, you know, that's a huge honor. And, uh, you know, to be recognized by someone that's been doing it this long. So uh, when uh, when John couldn't do it, I uh, reached out to my new friend uh, Mark Striegel over there at the Talking Metal podcast. Asked him if he would like to uh, co-host this week. He said yes. So uh, so after this break, and we're going to come back and uh, we will be talking to Mark Striegel. Connect with Talk to Me on Facebook at facebook.com/slash Talk to Me Talk. I'm not collecting friends and I'm not building any farms. I don't want to get sucked into this. And Twitter at Talk to Me Talk. All right, we've got uh, Mark Striegel on the line of Talking Metal. Thanks for uh, accepting the, uh, the the position of co-host this week. Joshua, thanks so, so much for having me here on the podcast. <laughs> no problem, man. Uh, uh, I, I went over it a little bit in the intro, but uh, John Drake, he was uh, he sings in a, in a cover band, and I guess uh, Labor Day weekend is a big deal for those guys. So I think he did like three shows, right. and uh, he, he texted me Monday morning. He was like, uh, I think I'll be good to go, but my voice is kind of trashed. And when he called in... Uh, I sat down and he was like, "Hey man, what's going on?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I don't know if you, you your voice is up to snuff on this one, man." But but yeah, he uh, he, he sang a little too many covers over the weekend. Right. So you actually the producer just cut him from the show. <laughs> I kind of did just cut him from the show. I was, uh, right. you, know, you know, people have been up in arms about him anyway, so I don't want to give them any more fodder to uh, to kind of yeah. to kind of get onto him for for his voice being uh, shot. I mean, it was pretty rough though. I, I you know. I I wouldn't have recorded. I don't think if my voice was that bad. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, he, he was ready to go though with the bad voice and everything. Then you just said you said no go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I I made sure to to say you know hopefully no 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 hard feelings. You know, he hasn't been on the show long enough to to where we can just kind of give each other shit yet. You know, we don't know each other that well, so I don't want him to right. be offended. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty rough sound and and. and even on a good day, my voice sounds funny, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you know, I try, I still try to put a good product out each and every week. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And by the way, the show sounds great. I mean, things that I always have an issue with, with podcasts, you know, and we, you and I just recently hung out with a bunch of podcasters, which we'll, we'll talk about, but to me, sound quality and production value is, is such a big thing. I, I have, I have some people aren't like this, but I personally have a hard time listening to shows that are, you know, done with a real bad headset microphone and levels all over the place. And, and that's why your show is joy to listen to because it sounds so pro man you do a great job on the production end i appreciate it man that's the one thing i i find a lot of um you know we're, we're friends with a lot of podcasters obviously but but you know when you're you're about to interview an, an artist and you go on and you search search out that artist in your uh, podcast catcher you might stumble uh stumble across some interviews that they've done in the past and you'll pull up some of those man and, and you find like you know uh you know, Mark Striegel's creepy hour <laughs> and you know, the guys, <laughs> the guy's trying to sound like Dracula. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, you know, and then he's got like Kirk from crowbar on and you're like, how did this guy ever get this interview? Like who okayed this interview in the first place? But yeah, it's, you'll find some fun yeah. stuff out there, but uh, you know, I, I try to put out good, good product each and every week. And, uh, you know, and this being the two year anniversary episode, I mean, if you go back and listen to the first 10, 12 episodes. I mean, they do sound like garbage. So it's, it's been trial and error. And, uh, yeah. but I think I found a setup that works, uh, works now. No, there's definitely always a learning curve. I mean, I, I listened to some of our early episodes and it's just, it's, uh, there's some of them that are just painful, especially the interviews. Like we used to just literally like take this like earpiece microphone record the, the interviews on, on our cell phones and it sounded terrible, but yeah. you know, technology has come a long way too with Skype and, and whatnot. But, uh, but yeah, yours always sounds great. And you know, congratulations on two years. That's great. Thanks man. Thank you. You're coming up on what, uh, 13, 12 or 13 now, right? Yeah. I, I think I, I have to think here. Yeah. 12. It's been 12. We've been doing it 12 cause I, I said, uh, when we were at the Rock and Pod Expo, which I know we're going to talk about, I, I was in Michael Butler's show, and I, I said, uh, I, my wife called me out because he asked me how long I'd been married, and I said eleven years, and she was like, "We've been married twelve years," you know, and, uh, <laughs> which I felt bad about. And nice. I started the podcast right after we got right after we got married, but I thought that was a good thing. I mean, if I if I would have said, "Oh, we've been married fifteen years, and we've only been married twelve, that's you know, that's bad," but it's been so great that the twelve years. Has has felt like eleven, you know. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. But yeah, twelve years for talking metal. Wow, I mean, that's a long time. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I've done this for two, but I mean, podcasting really didn't come into my even my my brain maybe until in the last four or five, you know, four or five years. It's not like in, in two thousand, you know, I guess two thousand five, and going back, I guess around two thousand four when they really started kicking off. I mean, I, I look back to that time, and I I do not even remember remotely thinking about a podcast. So, uh, what, what kind of brought you into the podcasting world? And then, and then, you know, what's maybe something you're seeing, uh, in the last five years, that's kind of made this whole medium take off. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I've I've told different versions of of why and and how I started podcasting, but uh, and a lot of people have been asking me that lately, and I, I've given it some thought. And this version of events may be a little bit different than stories I've told on other podcasts re, uh, recently. But specifically, the reason I started doing it was because. I had worked at VH1 on and off again, and I was always like the metal guy. Like I worked on like David Bowie Legends and Behind the Music and, you know, all sorts of uh, stuff. Mariah Carey, one to one all over the place at VH1. But I was the everyone knew I was like the metal nerd guy who, who knew all these crazy facts about metal. So when they started doing some countdown shows, they did a this big show called, uh, 100 most metal moments and they i i wrote ago probably about a fourth of the show i i wrote and then i produced well like 10 of the 100 packages and we were in the edit room it was a massive big production and and there were all, all these like where we need you know we had interviewed all these people and 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 there were whole stories. So they said, well, you, you know so much about this stuff. Why don't you jump in front of the camera to fill in some of these blanks and give us, you know, some more footage to work with. So I, I went uh, in front of the camera, I think on two different occasions, and <clears throat> became a talking head on this five-hour, you know, special on VH1. And it came out, and the ratings were really, really good and it did really well for, for and what happened even back in those days where this is like 2004 could have even been 2003 um people started saying well who the fuck is this guy mark striegel talking like like he's some expert you know on on the music and and i i i felt this need to have an an addition another platform to kind of like let people know that that uh, I I do love the music just up the street. So I really wanted to get more cred. And at that time, I I had heard um, about this this kind of buzzword like Adam Curry had is the is the pod father, and he just invented podcasting. And they called it Adam Curry, who you know years earlier had been limelight. Now this pod father of podcasts, and I was like, what the hell is that? And I started doing some research, and I started listening to handful of podcasts that were out on iTunes and uh, I you know I spoke to my friend John and and he, he was computing right the RSS feed and then essentially uh, appearing on the shows with me he wasn't on I think he was on the first episode but like the first 10 he wasn't really that that involved with mm -hmm. and and it went from there and because I was one of the only podcasts out there i mean at that time it was just like the rock and roll geek show there was this other metal podcast called entropy league classic metal show may have just been coming on right around that time um and that was it there was nothing else on 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 itunes as far as like hard rock or even rock goes i mean there was really nothing so we immediately started getting listeners and uh, you know kind of just went from there but i do think we benefit from from being one of the first, you know, I still have people who are subscribed to that, that feed from way back in 2005. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Just thinking about, I, mean, I guess, I guess I was never an Apple guy. I was never an iPod guy, an iPad or anything like that guy. So, I mean, I think it's, maybe that's just where I didn't, uh, I, I didn't, right. you know, cross paths with, with a podcast to begin with. Um, 
and then and then in all honesty, I but I've always loved talk radio, and I've always loved even you know even silly stuff like Dave Ramsey and and sports talk radio, and and you know Jim Rome. You know, I actually had a guy actually tell me one day that he thought my show kind of reminded him of sports talk radio, and I actually took that as a huge compliment because I really liked totally you know things like Jim Rome show and stuff like that growing up. Um, you know just. I've always seemed to have jobs where I was in the car and delivering something, you know, and and so um, t- I tend to listen more to to the talking heads rather than uh, you know just CDs over and over. So so I mean it it, it kind of um, you know morphed into this, and uh, even the guy that does a lot of my bumper stuff, a lot of the uh, the voiceover stuff for me. Um, when I messaged him about the podcast, the last message I had left him on uh, on Facebook was, "Hey man, I really I'm really thinking about doing an uh, online radio show, um, you know, just because I've always wanted to be behind a mic and do this type stuff. Even and I always I always assumed that I would be able to reach out to those handful of friends that I still had in the music business, you know, guys that are right. still in huge bands, and uh, you know, get my first few guests and uh, you know, kind of get my foot in the door. And I think that's what's happened. And and you know now. Uh, even today, I'm getting you know emails like, "Hey, would you like to talk to this guy? I think he's big enough for your show." And I, I just kind of laughed when I get those emails now. I'm like, I don't. I, I think it's oh, funny awesome. that the perception of the show is kind of funny. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, great. and then we get the uh, you know the Nashville Rock and Pot Expo just just took place. Uh, I can't believe it's almost been two weeks now, but uh, it, it was great to finally meet you in person. We had done the Classic Metal Show uh, Podcast Summit. Uh, a while back, put right. together by okay. Chris Aiken, and yep. then we uh, get to meet face to face in Nashville at the Rock and Pot Expo. And man, I I, I think that that uh, you know some people had their issues, but I think it went off without a hitch. I, I thought it was a, a great start. I, I I think you know Chris Sinzak did a great job at at really spearing everything, and and I really. really enjoyed it it was you know it wasn't like a relaxing time for me i was like totally working the whole day but i mean guests were like walking up to my table you know dead by wednesday toby wright raven mark slaughter i mean it was it was a dream to just sit there and have people come right to me as a podcaster i thought it was a really great event great expo so much fun and I feel that, you know, I really um, worked it there and and, and I, I got like literally like 10, 10 to 12 episodes recorded. I mean, including the ones I did on, on other people's shows. So I hope it happens again. I mean, have you heard anything if they're going to do another one next? I mean, they released, uh, you know, Decibel Geek. Decibel Geek released their uh, podcaster panel episode today. And they pretty much flat out said that they were going to, you know, start getting it together soon. And I think if they, uh, cool. you know, started soon, I think they'll be able to get a ton more guests and things like that. And, uh, man, it was, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I do tell the story about um, I've got probably like eight or nine interviews in the can. And of those eight, I, I maybe, <laughs> maybe only use um, four of them because... I the started background I, noise. Well, no, the background noise was fine. Actually, kind of, it kind of gives a nice ambiance. It was, it was more of the, uh, out al- the flowing alcohol all day. Uh, I did not realize how much it had caught up with me until I uh, sat down and started listening to myself try to speak. Um, you know, I'm talking to Toby Wright and I'm calling it "injustice for all" and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was, it's right. pretty rough. Yeah, man, I, the Toby Wright interview you did, I thought was was really, really good. I, I felt like I kind of bungled 
bungled the interview when it started off with him because uh, I was like frantically like reading Wikipedia and I wasn't really prepared for for an interview. But um, I guess I got some good feedback on it. So I guess people liked it. But yeah, great job with that. I thought they were your interview that you did with him and the one that I did with him, I thought were good, um, compatible interviews because I yeah. felt like we both hit different topics with yeah, I've listened to uh, cool. what I thought was cool about that, and I kind of I think I threw that in the uh, National Rock and Bot Expo Facebook group. But the one that was the one interview that right. like I had mine, you had yours, and um, Ages of Rock podcast did one too, and all three of our interviews were pr- pretty much different. I mean, you, you know, we hit on a couple of the same bands, but for the most part, you know, I hit on more of the Seven Dust stuff, and and uh, even you know he he even brought up Injustice for All, and then you know hit a little bit more on the. Uh, Maybe right. a little bit more on the corn stuff, where you know you talked about Alice in Chains, and then obviously Ages of Rock talked to more Kiss, and you know it, it was they were they were similar but different. I thought it was cool that an artist could go into a place like that, or a producer at this point could go into in a, in an establishment like that and have three, four, five interviews, and they're not the same interview over and over. It was uh, it was kind of cool to hear hear how we all work differently, but at the same time, I guess yeah, the same, definitely same time. Definitely. And so the background noise and stuff on the stage didn't didn't bother you at all. No, I mean I don't think you did. I you know I uh, you know the my, the 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 little setup I had uh, wasn't. I mean you were in a really bad spot. You were right on pretty much. Yeah, on we the were stage. right next to the <laughs> stage. Yeah. You know yeah. At, 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 when you first walk in, you're like, man, you know, talking metal gets the entire end cap. Basically, that's a pretty pretty prime spot. But I was. I was basically by the door, so I was almost as far away from the stage as you could get, and I never really had any right. issues with the uh, with the background noise. Right. Yeah. Um, we have maybe one podcast I don't think I can use because the background noise was just so intense. It was when um, <laughs> I'm using it anyways. It's kind of funny, but it's the com- what was the combat uh, the rock and the metal combat, combat podcast. Yeah. Rock. Yeah, rock and yeah. That, they, those guys were really loud when they were up there. And so I have that and you can totally hear them doing this show, like screaming in the background and then we're screaming, trying to do our show over top of them. So it's, it's actually, it's a train wreck, but I, you know, so maybe I will post it. It's kind of amusing. <laughs> That's what I'm, I'm wondering about these, uh, these other interviews because the, towards the end of the night, it was just other podcasters. I mean, there was, um, I did one with Sinzak. I did one with Aaron Camaro. I did one with John astronomy. I did one with, uh, actually Ian Wadley of the rock and metal combat podcast. And, uh, Actually, your wife Emily walks by at one point. I think she gets drugged into the conversation. Oh, uh, Greg Renoff's there. He was drugged into the conversation. I mean, it's it's. I've yet to listen to it. I'm almost afraid to listen to it. I'm sure it's a drunken mess, right. but uh, you know, it might be fun to put up maybe for like a for the VIPs or something for the Patreon page. Just uh, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, you, you actually uh, you actually just had John Connolly of Seven Dust and projected on your podcast. Um, you know, what are you thinking about this new projected album? I, I dug it. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I liked it. Um, the, it, it, I'm always have issues with albums that are super, super long. Like I, I feel that it could have been just for my short attention span. I could have taken like eight of those songs and it would have been like a perfect record. But yeah. I mean, there's like 21 songs or something on there. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a lot to digest. It's a lot to digest. Uh, but yeah, it's great. I mean, great players, great musicianship, great songwriting. Um, yeah, so I, I can't knock it too too much. I mean, it's, it's just very long. I would have rather they put out 
two separate releases or even three with that many songs. But, but uh, you know, great stuff, great stuff, I and mean, great guy. Uh, did you have technical issues? Like his cell phone kept dropping out when I was talking to him. But besides that, it was a pleasure to talk to him. Yeah, not not that bad. It definitely wasn't a, a George Lynch level of a uh, cell phone. Right. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, John, it didn't really cut out. I mean, I did listen to yours today. And um, yeah, it didn't it didn't cut out like that. I mean, you know, maybe he was just in a good spot when he talked to me. Yeah. But uh, it's always kind of sketchy when you get a, a cell phone in the middle of nowhere, and you know, I kind of I try to edit around a, as best I can, but sometimes you just can't. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Um, I've had I have I've had like interviews just completely drop out with. I had Jay, James Durbin, the guy yeah. who's now. In- <laughs> quiet right on a while ago and like his cell phone just kept cutting out cutting out and finally like it was gone and i didn't have his number to call call him back and he never called me back and it just that's how the interview ended so <laughs> nice. yeah it happens definitely but you know it's it's it blows me away that guys like george lynch or or james durbin wouldn't know enough to like call people on a landline you know it's, the landline just sounds so much better on these podcast interviews or radio interviews for that matter than, than a cell phone does. But I guess actually heard, <laughs> they uh, don't know enough to do that. One of the random times I actually listened to Eddie trunk on his, uh, on his, what is it? The Monday show he does on trunk nation or whatnot. I had it Hair on nation. the other day yeah, and, yeah. uh, he, he was actually, um, he had Oni Logan from, from actually Lynch mob one and he was cutting in and out and he finally just had, he said he had to let him go. And then he, he, you know, does one of the Eddie trunk PSAs of, if you're in a band and you want to do anything and you have a record coming out, get a landline. <laughs> right. It's like the, you know, it's the exact <laughs> yeah. thing you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I had Oni on. I haven't. I haven't posted it, but I, as far as I remember, his connection was really good for me. So it works out. And, you know, it's yeah. Like, this is a crapshoot. When I, I had Brendan Small of uh, you know, the Metalocalypse Death Clock stuff, he was up in like upstate, yeah. upstate New York and like Woodstock, and he said <laughs> it was, it was quite possibly like you know he probably had one bar of service the entire episode but uh it came out somewhat good metalocalypse is completely done now right i mean yeah yeah they uh they can't they actually i think they pulled the plug on the show yeah it was a great show yeah it was fun it was you know it was kind of uh you know to, to get something like that on tv that's crazy yeah no absolutely yeah he was a TV guy, though. I know he worked on like some Comedy Central shows or something. Yeah, he did. Uh, he did home yeah. movies, and he did. Um, okay, he did a few other things, but yeah, he he somehow got in the, like the Doctor Katz world, which I thought was awesome because I loved Doctor Katz back in the day. But but um, yeah, he he got a, he got into that, and then somehow pitched a, a death metal you know, TV show, and you know got it on the air. So yeah, definitely. Well, Mark, let's jump into our uh, our Talk To Me cover of the week. And uh, Talk To Me cover cool. of the week is always brought to you by PuckHockey.com. That is P-U-C-K-H-C-K-Y. Make sure to head over there, shop till you drop. Use the promo code TALK at checkout for 10% off your entire order. So you can go over there and get yourself some uh, Dave Ellis and stuff, 36 Crazy Fists, uh, Doyle, Tom Hazart, and uh, what else they got? They got the Overkill hoodies in now. Uh, I believe they got some Testament stuff. So yeah, head over to PuckHockey.com. P-U-C-K-H-C-K-Y.com and uh, use the promo code TALK at checkout and the Talk To Me cover of the week this week is going to be 7 Dust's version of, uh, it's a cover of a cover, 7 Dust's version of Hurt uh, done in the style of Johnny Cash and uh, as a tribute to Johnny Cash the day he died. So we will play the 7 Dust's Hurt then we will talk to John Connolly and then I will be back with Mark Striegel.
myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the brain the only thing that's real the needle tears a Johnny Cash. Well, John Connolly, welcome, uh, welcome somewhat back to the Talk To Me podcast. <laughs> I appreciate you rescheduling and redoing the interview with me. No worries, no worries, man. In the age of 
EPs, singles, and uh, putting out one song a month type stuff. You've uh, you have the audacity to put out a, a double album, man. What are you thinking? Um, I, you know, and not really thinking at all, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I think we just, you know, we went into it with uh, every intention of making, you know, a regular record, you know, somewhere around twelve songs, give or take. And, uh, you know, the idea is to go into the studio. You always want to be extra prepared in case something isn't working. Um, you know, there, there's some bands that write just enough for the record. And then there's other bands that kind of like to go in and always like to have some leftover stuff, you know, B-sides, soundtracks, you know, imports. You know, I mean, there's always a use for an extra song or two or whatever. So you figure, you know, 16, 17 songs is a good number to go in with. And, uh that's what we did. And every time that I would try to trim one, you know, someone was losing their mind, you know, that's my favorite. You can't get rid of that song. I was like, okay, all right, well, what about this one? No, you can't get rid of that one. That's, you know, my cousin's favorite song. And after a couple of weeks of doing that, we just said, all right, this is, this is getting difficult. And, um, we just figured it was easier to push the other way. You know, we said, all right, let's, let's go in the opposite direction. Let's get, you know, 20, 21 songs somewhere around there. And let's do two records, you know. I mean, I was still under the, the whole assumption of, you know, we'll split them up. We'll do the, uh, you know, the smart move. And the label loved the idea of the double record. You know, they were like, look, you know, it was all written together anyways. Um, so let's do something that, you know, isn't really in vogue. On top of the fact that it has, you know, I mean, at that point we didn't realize it, but it's five years from the debut record to the sophomore record. And, you know, what a better way to reward the fans and just give them a whole bunch of stuff to sink their teeth into, you know. And for us, it really wasn't that much of a stretch. I mean, it was, you know, in hindsight, I look back on it and go, OK, there was a lot of work, but it didn't feel like a lot of work, you know, which is, I guess, a good thing when you're in that, you know, um, typically, I mean, the way Seven Dust works is a whole lot different. So, you know, for us going through this, um, it's always you know, a giant question mark. I mean, on all, you know, all levels with Rat Pack, with us, you know, writing, singing, recording, everything. It was like, okay, we've never done this much music. I think E-Rock probably came the closest because in Tremonti, he had, they recorded 20 songs um, all together when they did Dust and Cauterize, but they split it. Yeah. But the workload was similar. So he was kind of used to that. But for me, it was just like, all right, what am I getting myself into here? <laughs> you know, and then you're halfway down the road going, wow, <laughs> done a lot of work and I got a lot of work left to go. But I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of one of those different, you know, songwriters, I guess, you know, when the iron's hot, I, you know, I just kind of like to keep going, you know, even in like seven dust mode now. I mean, there's, there's so many demo songs that I know that probably half the next project record is already written. <laughs> so, so with so many songs in this projected album and the, you know, some of the, obviously you can tell what you kind of write in seven dust kind of coming from this stuff. You kind of tell your, your flair and your flavor. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these songs technically could be seven dust songs. Are there, are there moments where they're like, dude, 22 songs, we could have used a couple of those. Has any of those uh, conversations come up? Yeah, they come up all the time. And the funny thing is, you know, it's it's the same answer that happened on the first record. Seven Dust always has first writer refusal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I always, whatever I do musically, I always give Seven Dust the option of exploring it first. Um, 
and it's not to say that you know projected is leftover stuff by any means because there was some things that were specifically written for both of the records but for the initial you know bulk of the demos perfect example right now um we, we go in the studio with seven dust in october to start pre-production but we've been working since you know march and the demos are piling up and i mean between clint and myself there's probably 40 45 different ideas and there's no way that 40 or 45 things are ever going to make a record and it's not because they're bad songs it's just because there's just not enough space for it um so yeah i mean you know most of these things were explored at one point or another in the world of seven dust but the funny thing is it actually goes both ways too because i had a couple things that I really, really thought we're going to be projected. And when I played them for the Seven Dust guys, by mistake, <laughs> they fell in love with those songs. So we ended up recording them. And then I had to go back to Scott and Eric and be like, dude, uh, you know that song you loved? Well, it's going on Kill the Flaw. And they were like, oh, man. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's uh, it's just a matter of kind of fitting the vibe. You know, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing after doing this for 20 years that you realize is it's not about the best song. It's about the best song to fit what the vibe of the record is. Um, you know, out of all the ideas that I've written, now that I've actually had a writing session with Lejean and Morgan and Vinny up in Atlanta, you know, sitting face to face, I know where their headspace is. And it's easier for me to figure out which songs that I have in the batch that'll fit that headspace. And it's always a learning process because I know that there's five or six songs that I feel really strongly about that just aren't going to fit. They're just not going to work in that environment. So, you know, it's not necessarily about a bad song. Trust me, there's plenty of bad songs, but some of the really, really good ones are the ones that you realize they're just not going to fit the vibe of the records. Absolutely. And the one thing I noticed on this too was obviously your writing style. You can kind of tell what you bring to Seven Dust. And I'm sure that you guys all bring similar ideas to Seven Dust, but you know, you can kind of feel like the maybe the chunkier riffs might be might be coming from you just judging from this album. But the other thing too is vocally you can tell uh what you bring to Seven Dust and you know, listening to the Foo Fighters for all these years, and then you go back and listen to Nevermind and, and all the Nirvana stuff, and you're like, and you can totally pick out Dave Grohl's harmonies just because sure. you're so accustomed to Dave's voice. And now listening to Projected and then going back to Seven Dust, you, you can totally, you know, pick your voice out of the mix there. Oh, that's cool. I mean, we do chameleon each other very well, though. I mean, Morgan, myself, and Clint have, uh, you know, when you sing behind someone who's as gifted as Lejean for all these years, you, you learn. Um, that you're kind of forced to learn and you know you you realize when you need to kind of get in there and get out of the way you need to blend um, there's other times where you need to kind of step out front and have it be more of a performance and something that's added you know as a color or a texture but um, but yeah I mean I think inevitably you're going to listen back and you're going to hear it um, and that that that's cool I mean uh, you know it, it's cool that, that people can pick those things out after uh, after all these years are you excited about doing some live shows, being the, the actual front man, not having, you know, not being able to just stand behind Lejean, but actually have to go out front and, and front the band? Uh, excited. Yeah. Terrified. Yeah. Some of that too. You know I mean? It's, it's kind of goes both hand in hand, I guess. Um, you know, it, there's always that comfort zone of, uh, being able to kind of tuck in, you know, behind Lejean and, uh, you know, that's what I've known my whole life. And now I'm all of a sudden the guy who, 
you know, someone else is tucking in behind. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's super exciting, but it's it's nerve wracking, too, because it's one thing to go into the studio and sing and do performances. But then it's another thing to actually get up on stage and be a front man. And, you know, regardless of whether Lejean opens his mouth to actually sing a song or not, he's one of the best front men in the business. I mean, he's just he's got this amazing rapport with the crowd. And, you know, I joked around with Mark Chimani the whole, you know, when he was getting ready to go on the road, I was like, so what are you going to do between the songs? He was like, I don't know, man, I'm terrified. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I should do dance or, you know, tell jokes or, you know, just be the real mysterious, you know, Maynard kind of guy or whatever. But, uh, you know, I think that's the biggest thing is it's like, okay, I know the parts, I know the words. <laughs> what are we going to do in between the first song and the second song? You know, what am I going to talk about? What's it like for you to kind of get in a room with with guys that are not seven dust? Obviously, Vinny's in the, in the uh, projected band, but I mean, to get mm-hmm. in the room with the, some just some fresh dudes and and write. I mean, because seven dust has as I've talked with the, even Lejean on this podcast. I mean, this is technically this, except for the short period of time where uh, where uh, Clint was out. You know, there's uh, been a consistency in that band. So, I mean, what's it like for you to play with other people? It's cool. I mean, it's. Um it's the same but it's totally different at the same time because my process um doesn't really change from start to finish but with seven dust my process always has a lot of interjection at a certain point you know usually about halfway through whatever i'm doing demo wise everyone comes in and then all of a sudden we start rearranging and moving stuff around and and there's some times where you know we'll dig into a song and by the time we're finished with it, there's, there's very little of the song that's actually left. You know, we'll actually change so much that I look at it and go, okay, well, I can still use that song because we're not doing that song anymore. Um, with Projected, it's a little bit different. You know, usually if I have a vision at the beginning of the song, I can kind of follow it through to the end. And the guys, they give me a lot of space. Um, obviously, they're, they're going to throw their two cents in and their opinions, but they're not going to try to write or try to you know, redo parts until it becomes evident that, you know, we need the help. You know, if a song's struggling, we go, all right, what's wrong with it? You know, why is the chorus not working? Why is that bridge section not working or whatever? But um, but it's awesome, you know, to be able to sit down with other guys. Um, it's something that I haven't done a whole lot of. I mean, since we started Seven Dust, this is the first thing that I've done outside of Seven Dust. You know, Clint's done HDMS. He's done Call Me No One. He left to go do Dark New Day. He's produced a ton of bands and he's done co-writes with a ton of bands. So for him, it's second nature. You know, he's used to just getting in a mix of a bunch of different people. But for me, it's something new, you know, and, uh, you know, there's times where I almost feel like I have to apologize because I'm like, all right, look, I'm just I'm not used to this. (laughs) So, you know, tell me when I'm screwing up here or tell me what you hate. You know, don't be afraid to, you know, get in there and, and give me your honest opinion. And, uh, it's awesome, you know, because they usually just kind of let me, you know, either finish it out and it works great or they let me wreck the ship. And they're, they're confident in the fact that I can kind of tell when I've, I've wrecked the ship. You know, I mean, it's it's obviously when you get 90 percent down into a song and you go, all right, this song is just not cutting it. Um, you know, but a lot of that comes from the experience in Seven Dust, you know, and I I take a lot of those those cues and things from, you know, everything that I've learned. Um Years ago, you you know, you go into the studio and you have what uh, we all call demoitis. You know, you listen to your demo so many times and you're convinced that 
it's the number one song on billboard and you know it's just the best thing that you've ever done and you know after the first couple of years you realize that uh you know when the rest of the band goes oh yeah it's pretty cool that's a death sentence that means it's never going to get worked on it's never going to make a record no matter how much you love it so so for me, it's, it, it's cool to have an outlet for some things that, you know, if I play something for Lejean and he's just, I can use a toe within, you know, 10 seconds if he's into it. If he's not into it, that's cool because I may have a completely different vision than what he's thinking about the song. So, you know, that's usually my first guess that, okay, this is something that projected should explore or at least, you know, run it up the flagpole and see what happens. And it's, you know, lo and behold, it's it's usually the case where I'll, I'll play one of those songs that didn't get a reaction for one group of guys. You know, I'll turn around and I'll play it for Scott and Eric and they'll flip out and just fall in love with it. So you go, OK, you know, and I don't even know if they know what the full vision is either. But, you know, just that knee jerk reaction to something, um, you know, kind of gives you a good idea. And it's it's uh, it's cool for me working with other folks now, you know. I wanted to hit on something you had talked in the last the last time we talked about uh, being huge into James Hetfield and Dimebag, and after talking to you, I went and watched some videos, and I noticed your 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 Dean. Your is that your signature guitar? Yes, sir. Yep. So is that an homage to both of those guys? Because it's kind of got the Explorer, but it's also kind of got the Dimebag <laughs> twist to it too. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I mean, I played Les Pauls for years. You know, I did the. I did the, you know, Dime used to joke around. He was like, hey, you're the guy, you know, went, went and bought a Marshall and Les Paul, you know, Zach Wild. Yeah, we got it. And I'm like, <laughs> well, yeah, I kind of did. You know, I kind of did the the textbook rock 101 move. Um, but the funny thing was, like, the Les Paul was never super comfortable for me. And it was because I tend to play a lot further up on the fretboard on a lot of things. Um, you know, watching James Hetfield play Master of Puppets, where everyone else plays it completely differently. It was like a light bulb, you know, I, I was sitting there. I was actually working on um, it. We had time off. It was bit alpha was recorded. It was in the bag and we were basically just sitting around at home uh, for about seven or eight months before we hit the road. You know, we purposely took some time off. So let's hit the pause button. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to learn some Pantera. You know, Dime always said he was going to teach me guitar. And after he passed, I said, well, you know, let me get a book out and at least start dig into some of his stuff. And I was playing Cowboys from Hell and I was playing at the position that he plays it in on the Les Paul. And it was like, it was just so uncomfortable. And I was sitting there and I had a picture of James up on the wall and he's holding the Explorer. And I look at a picture of Dime and he's got the ML. And I looked down at my guitar and I'm looking at the Les Paul. And I look over in the corner at my old Explorer that had dust on it. I hadn't touched the thing in probably 10 years. And it was like the light bulb just got so bright. I put the Les Paul down, grabbed the Explorer, sat down, and immediately it was a thousand times easier to play. <laughs> so, you know, I took I took a couple of notes. I was like, as much as I love Les Pauls, and I'm not knocking the Les Paul, but there's there's different tools. Like sometimes when you need a hammer, you're not going to go grab a screwdriver. And that's kind of the way that I look at it. Um, it's just a better tool for what I do. You know, for me, naturally, the way that I play and from the cues that I got from those guys, you know, something that Zach Wild would play is something, you know, completely different from the way that Dime or James might approach it. And, uh, you know, Metallica was like, that was the band that really did it for me at first. 
And then Pantera really sealed the deal. You know, once I heard Vulgar Display of Power, I went, whoa, 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 hold on. This is, you know, this is like completely, you know, not to be corny or anything, but a, a new level. Uh, you know, it was literally, I heard that song and went, okay. <laughs> they named the song A New Level and I was sitting here freaking out over it. So, yeah, you know, for me, it, it was a natural thing because the Explorer was, um, you know, it was it was the one of my first earliest instruments that I kind of left to go with the Les Paul. But when I came back around, you know, I wanted to change the scale length. And uh, Dean was the one company that could go either way. They could do the Fender scale or the Gibson scale. And it felt natural. You know, I was like, well, Dime was such a huge influence. So, yeah, I mean, my signature is basically a, a montage of, of both of those guys. You said that um, Dime always said he was going to teach you how to play guitar. What was your uh, relationship with Dime? We just, we hit it off, you know, it was one of those things I had moved to, uh, my wife, well, my girlfriend at the time, uh, we weren't married. She was living in Dallas and, you know, when we first started touring, I didn't have a, I didn't have an apartment. I didn't have a house. I didn't have anything. You know, we, we did the whole, all right, put everything in storage, you know, put all your bigger stuff out of mom and dad's house and, uh, you hit the road. So for me, it really didn't matter where I was going to live because it was basically just a suitcase and a guitar. And she lived in Dallas and we had run into the Pantera guys a couple of times on that first album cycle and then followed up again on the second one. But when I was spending time off, I'd see them occasionally in Dallas. And uh, he was a really big fan of our band, you know, and it blew me away. I mean, but for the same thing, you know, when we played with Metallica, you know, standing up on stage and looking over and seeing Lars and James sitting there, you know, smiling, giving you the thumbs up. I was just like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> my mind's, my mind is being blown right now. You know, there's like my ultimate guitar hero standing there approving what I'm doing, opening up for him. But it was the same thing with Pantera. You know, anytime that we hung out, it was just, it was good times. You know, we listened to music, talk shop, had a lot of drinks. And, uh, you know, it was one of those natural things. I mean, we, we hung out, um, at his birthday party, which was at Vinnie Paul's house this one year. And we all just sat around drinking and we watched him. They, they had a, a ZZ Top cover band called Trace Hombres. And he hired him literally to set up in his living room. And Dime knew more ZZ Top than ZZ Top does. Like he knows everything. So we watched him literally play ZZ Top for about three hours. You know, we just kept feeding him shots. He finally just got, you know, went up there and was like, hey, man, can I jam a tune? And the guitar player was like, hell yeah, get on this thing. And he just started calling tunes out, you know, but... That's just the way he was, man. He was just like the life of the party, you know, any show. It didn't matter whether it was us coming through town, you know, Poison, Cinderella. He was in all the hair metal stuff. He was in, you know, Slayer, you know, Zach Wilde, Kiss, everything. You know, Vinny and Don were there. And, uh, you know, living in Dallas, it was kind of kind of hard to get away from that, you know, because I was going all the same shows. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. There's like those old photos from... Right, probably around Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, where it's you know James and Kirk and and Dime, you know, all hanging out. Oh yeah, and uh, I'd, oh, I'd yeah. love yeah. to have seen what they were talking about there. Right. <laughs> or you know, if it would have ever came true to where uh, I guess Dave Mustaine actually offered the gig to Dime uh, before. Martin yeah, he Freeman. had it. And uh, yeah, it, you know, what, wonder what could have been. He had it. Yeah, I mean, he was committed to Nick, you know, and I, I give Dave a lot of props for that because he. You know, he obviously he knew Vinny and he knew that it was kind of a package deal, but, you know, he wasn't going to 
take the gig away from Nick Menza. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine what, well, we probably wouldn't have had Pantera because he would have left and, you know, so everything happens for a reason. Yeah. I'm kind of glad it happened. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of glad that, yeah. you know, originally was kicked out of Metallica because, you know, they oh, were yeah. no Megadeth, yeah. you know, and Megadeth is yep. six top. degrees of separation yeah. all the way around, That's you know, crazy. Well, we can actually get this right back around because of the six degrees of separation with you and the, you know, Alter Bridge, Creed, Tremonti camps. It does kind of seem like a, sure. uh, you know, an incestual relationship with all of the bands. It always seems like you guys are, uh, you know, doing projects together, you know, co-writes and things like that. Um, you know, where did that relationship begin and how did that build to, build together? It was basically around the same time and it, it was Metallica. Um, we were opening up for Metallica. We had we had gotten, I think it was like 10 or 11 shows that we were doing with Metallica, but the, the four big ones, um, it was either three or four big ones. There was one in Miami, one in Tampa. I think the silver dome was one. Anyways, there were these big stadium shows and Creed was a part of the package. It was us and Metallica and somebody else. I don't remember that we're doing the smaller ones, you know, doing the arenas like 20,000 seats. Um, but the big stadium ones was <laughs> right. You, you know what I mean? But the stadiums, you know, these football stadiums that we were playing had a, it had kid rock and it had Creed on it. And that was back in 99. So, you know, we kind of had the introduction there. We actually played one radio show with Creed before that. And it was a, a quick thing. You know, we said, hello, they were nice. It was cool. And that was about the end of it. But on the Creed stuff, I mean, on the Metallica stuff, you know, we actually got a chance to hang out a bit. And, you know, that happened to be the year that we were, you know, shopping for new management and their management was on our radar. So we came down to Orlando and had the meeting and I've never left. <laughs> I'm still here. You know, management's gone and the accounting firm's gone and all that good stuff. But but, yeah, we, we made that relationship, that friendship. Um, obviously, if you're going to have the, the same manager and booking agent and accountant, it's really easy to do the math. It's like, OK, well. Seven Dust and Creed are going to tour together. And at first, it didn't really seem like it made sense. And even today, it kind of doesn't make sense in some ways. But, um, you know, I mean, we probably developed and, and built more fans that weren't, you know, we we were more in tune to play with Slayer than we were with Creed. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that was also before the Angel Sons. And, you know, we had kind of explored the whole acoustic side of the band. So in a lot of ways, it makes a... It makes a lot of sense now. Oh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was um, late teens, early 20s, you know, when that was going on. And, you know, Seven Dust is one of my favorite bands of all time. And I see you guys are starting to go out of the Creed and stuff like that. And, it, you know, it threw me off, too. So I was right there with you guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was one year where we had, we had Creed for like three months. And then we had a short break. And then we went out on Tattoo the Earth with Slipknot and Slayer <laughs> and Sepultura. And we were right in between Slayer and Sepultura. I was like, we, we felt like Bon Jovi up there. I was like, we couldn't make the set heavy enough. But on the Creed stuff, you know, we went back to Creed after that. And it was like, all right, wait a minute. We're freaking people out now because we had the heavy set going and people were looking at us going, what is going on here? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a crazy year for us uh, switching gears back and forth between it. But that's kind of the latitude that... Uh, you know, Seven Dust has, has had um, pretty much since, you know, the animosity days. I mean, when you choose to kind of step outside and do those kinds of things, you know, you 
it's always a leap of faith. You're like, all right, hopefully our fans love it. And they loved it enough that we did the, you know, Southside double wide record. And then we came back and did another, you know, acoustic record with time travelers and bonfires. And it, it was accepted, you know, so we're like, okay, we are that band. I don't know that Slayer is going to do acoustic. I don't know that Slipknot would be able to do acoustic. You know, it's just a totally different animal for those guys. But for us, you know, with Lejean, he gives us a lot of wiggle room. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a cool gear and a cool option to have. I'd, uh, I'd seen you guys last year. I guess it was last summer. Um, came, you know, came through town, sounded amazing. Like the club I saw you guys, that was the Mercury ballroom here in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was, uh, you know, I've seen tons of shows there, but I don't know if it was your sound guy. It was the day where I was standing or what, but it was probably the best sounding show I've, you know, probably ever heard you guys do. And so, Oh, that's awesome. We love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I took my I took my 11 year old son to like basically I take I guess it was his first real concert ever, and uh, man, he had a blast and you know went away, uh, you know, talking about how cool it was because you know as much as dad is into is into metal and played it his whole life, you know, he could care less about what dad's doing. But uh, so I went, sure. I had to show him what was going on, and uh, you know I think he went right, a little right. bit more of a, a little bit more into it. That's awesome. <laughs> Actually, the Westfield Massacre. Um, Got, brought him out on stage and uh he uh, introduced oh, him really? or something yeah it was pretty funny i've got video oh that's awesome because i had had uh i had, had tommy tommy on the podcast a long time ago and uh talked to him yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. you know good good guy good guy and getting to, getting to do some cool stuff uh hanging around the five finger death punch guys yeah yeah for sure uh we'll kind of wrap it up with uh you know you signed basically two record contracts recently and you know we had talked a little bit about it before but you know you guys had your turmoil you know tvt wind up uh-huh. um and then uh, you know obviously going on to do your own uh, seven bros type stuff um you know were you apprehensive to to sign either of these deals are you excited what's going on uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when you've been on your own island for a while, you know, and all of a sudden <laughs> some, some strange people come up there on a boat, you're, you're always a little hesitant because uh, we started the Seven Brothers thing, um, God, back in like late 2005, beginning of 2006. So you're talking about 10 years where we've kind of, you know, we've been in the mix, we've been in the business, but we've been pretty isolated you know because for all intents and purposes seven brothers is the bank that's it you know we don't have an infrastructure you know we utilize a lot of the resources at ada and ilg um but you know we don't have anyone to kind of keep you in check which also means you don't have anyone else on your team um the upside to it is you can be super efficient on how you get your work done the downside is the target's on your back. You can't blame anyone for things working or not working. Um, and, you know, we've finally got to the point where, you know, I mean, I thought it was a joke when we got the, the Grammy nomination. I really did because I was actually joking around with a buddy of mine. He had posted a picture. He got the Grammy invitation. And this was before we were announced. And he was like, hey, I think I'm going to skip it this year. Sounds like it's going to be a bunch of Black Keys and Adele. And I joked in there and uh chris from five finger jumped on the same thread and we were just kind of joking you know around and then two days later all of a sudden i see these posts up there and it was it was surreal because like for the whole first day i i honestly still thought it was a joke i was like we're getting punked here this this is who is doing this um so yeah there is something to be said about that you know when you can actually do it on on your own and actually get the acceptance and the acknowledgement from the community it was cool, but it was also something that we realized, okay, we've done this. 
and we've produced our own records. I mean, we've produced six uh, of our own records on our own. Um, you know, we've had tremendous engineers in the studio with us, but as far as the calling the shots, the building the songs, the what's going to make it, what's not going to make it, we've done that for a while. And there's a certain beauty in being able to do that, but there's also a certain beauty in, in being able to hire a producer, hire a label, you know, get a team behind you. And we figured, all right, if we can, if we can do this with no team, what would happen if we actually hired a GM and hired a coach, you know? And that was kind of our thinking. It was like, look, we know what we can do. We don't have to prove that anymore. So let's do something different. You know, I mean, we're, all of us are still super enthusiastic about the band and, and the music and moving forward. Every record gets a little bit, you know, bigger as far as the, you know, the, the community of, of people in the business that are, I mean, there's still people that are, you know, learning that seven dust even exists. Um, and, you know, we've been doing it for 20 years. So you figure, all right, if you didn't know that we existed, you've either been living under a rock or we're just not screaming loud enough. And this is kind of our way to scream a little bit louder, you know, same thing with projected. I mean, we did the whole first record out of our house and I kind of realized going into this thing, I was like, I think this thing is a little bit too big for us to get our hands wrapped around and be able to, you know, to deal with, um, especially being the fact that the, the schedules of seven dust and projected were starting to overlap, you know, in a perfect world, if I had been able to get projected out last year, you know, towards the end of the year, um, you wouldn't have had that much overlap, but, yeah, it's been great. I mean, you know, having the label in place to be able to handle fulfillment, customer service, you know, just doing a lot of things that physically we just physically don't have time enough to do. Um, it's a cool spot for us to be in. You know, it's weird. It's like we, you know, you, you spend your whole life to sign a record deal and then you spend the whole, you know, next three or four years trying to get out of your record deal. And we did. And now we're, getting back in a record deal it's like <laughs> everyone was like wait a minute you were out why are you getting back in um but but the team atmosphere and the enthusiasm behind it is something that uh you know it's it's the right time um and not only that we've actually just uh, recently signed um not only the new record over with rise but um actually everything from next moving on forward is actually going to be going over to the rise camp as well and i think they're going to be doing like re-release of uh we're probably going to do vinyl and people have been screaming about vinyl forever. So I think, uh, you know, the game plan is for us to, you know, start doing some of that stuff in vinyl, you know, uh, special editions, you know, with the bonus tracks and, you know, obviously there's a ton of video footage and all kinds of stuff that we've got in there as well, but it just felt right. You know, it was like, all right, you know, we know that we can make the music and we know that we can produce the music and we know that we can get out there and support it as best we can. But, let's get a team behind us. You know, we look at other bands, you know, we, we look at the disturbed camp and, and the fact that they've had Warner in place their whole career. And we go, all right, you know, are we shooting ourselves in the foot here by not asking for some help? Um, and maybe, you know, I mean, it's, it's time to put that litmus test to, you know, to work and see, um, but it's exciting for us, you know, yeah. I mean, it's going to be weird because, you know, we're going to go in there and you're going to get opinions because obviously when you're dealing with a label, you have a lot of people that want to, you know, voice their opinion. But I think at this point, it's it's good for us to listen and good for us to, uh, you know, take notes and just trying to keep up with the business as it is. You know, everything is different from 10 years ago. You know, 10 years ago, we were still selling CDs. <laughs> and 
I don't think we're going to be selling CDs nearly as much as we were 10 years ago. You know, everything's about streaming and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And it's just, it's changing so quickly that it's cool to be able to kind of, you know, keep your finger on the pulse, but we need people to help us do that. You know, so yeah, you know, (laughs) been unsigned technically for 10 years and now I signed two record deals in a year. (laughs) Getting back to your CD point there, man, as huge of a music fan as I am, I don't think that I own a proper CD player anymore. Like the the cars that we have don't have them. You know, I've got, you know, my phone is Bluetooth to everything. I have like probably 30 Bluetooth speakers and headphones and and everything else. So, you know, it's it's, the same with me. I mean, I have a. I have a Blu-ray player that can play CDs, um, but we actually just upgraded the uh, the iMac that I work on, that I actually you know make music on, and I literally bought a uh, um, a solid-state drive, you know, little little caddy, um, and I'm pulling the CD, <laughs> I'm pulling the Super Drive out of the computer because you know my buddy was like, "Do you still use it?" I was like, "No." He was like, "Get rid of it then and put another drive in there." You know, you could have two terabytes, you can have a solid state in your regular hard drive to store stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's the same with me. I mean, I have one in the car, and you know, once in a blue moon, I kind of skip around and go, "All right, what's in here?" Ooh, there's some Pantera, there's some Zeppelin, some Meshuggah. Um, But yeah, I mean, everything for me is is pretty much Bluetooth, and I still buy. I still buy physical stuff that I'm like super attached to, you know, I still like the presentation of the physical product, but there's nothing better than having, you know, 20,000 songs at your disposal at all, all times, you know, Oh yeah. for me, I can grab my phone and my Bluetooth speaker and we're set. You know what I mean? I I understand that 100%, especially road trip. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. my wife and I are—we're actually—we're actually about to go to Nashville Saturday for the uh, Nashville Rock and Pot Expo, where I'll be—I'll uh, be at a booth, and then uh, actually Toby Wright's going to be there. So if you have a message for Toby, oh, nice. I can pass that on. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, tell tell him say what's up, man. It's been, it's been a minute. Well, yeah, we'll do, man. But uh, um, last seven us question, then we'll, uh, then I'll give you a couple more uh, projected ones. But you know, sure. um. I feel I feel like you know Seven Us can't kind of came up through the new metal ranks, and then mm-hmm. you know you guys went on to do your own thing and kind of you know lasted through emo and metalcore and you know whatever other sub genre of, of music, and you've kind of come out on the other side, um, still pull still drawing you know good numbers things like that. I mean, are you uh, do you feel like Seven Us is a career band at this time, and kind of maybe even getting into that like you know almost a heritage act? Oh, I mean, I, I guess you don't have a choice once you're 20 years in. <laughs> you know, we're, we're two decades into this thing. I mean, yeah, we, we were up there working with uh, with Corey, Clint's brother, in the studio, and we were talking about DeJant. I was like, it's an actual music style. And I, was, I was like, because we, we used to joke around, jent, 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 jent. Yeah. I was like, okay, there's a whole style that's called that now. Um, they tried to give us, I think I've got a poster somewhere upstairs in one of the closets that, uh, it was one of the first posters we ever did, and they didn't know what to call us. I mean, because new metal wasn't even on the radar yet. Like they were still trying to figure out what corn was, and we were, you know, just a year or so behind them. And we were called Progressive, and it, yeah, it actually says, you know, number one progressive band at, at college radio. And I was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know? But uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, I guess we are. You know, I mean, it's the same five guys twenty years in. You know, we're either too stubborn or too stupid to stop. So, you know, I guess that's a good thing because we're still having fun and enjoying it. So everyone, you know, if all of our fans are still enjoying it, too, then, you know, it's a win win. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think at this point, you know, we're not doing it 
I, I guess on one hand, we're not doing it for the, you know, because we're like Metallica side and it's about the money. And on the other hand, it's not because we don't have other options. I mean, you know, Clint's had so many different, you know, bands and opportunities. And now I have, you know, a side project. Morgan has worked with, you know, a ton of outside stuff. But Lejean is actually going to be doing some solo stuff finally. But yeah, I mean, I think for us, it's just like, it's home. It's it's the comfort zone. You know, it's kind of the reason for everything. I mean, we wouldn't have any of the rest of it, you know, from all the side projects, bands, whatever. Um, you know, if Clint's going to go in the studio, people know him as the guitar player, you know, songwriter in Seven Dust. And, uh, you know, it's crazy. I mean, if you had told me in 1997 that I'd be talking to you now, you know, over 20 years later, I'd be like, wow, okay, then I guess we did something right. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I guess we are sort of a, a heritage band. <laughs> well, it's cool. We actually hung out in 1997, too, probably. So <laughs> Nice, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, <laughs> the one, the, I guess the one question I had for, for Lejean was, I mean, even, you know, Seven Us as, as a band 20 years into it, I mean, you know, normally – at this time it would be Lejean and four other dudes or, or like, you know, there's, Le, sure. there's Lejean's seven dust and then there's John Connolly's seven dust experience. Right. And, you know, it's like there's uh, two different rats rolling around out there. One of them's just got the drummer or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah, it starts then, uh, to get weird. Yeah, the same with the, you know, like morbid angel, you know, there's two more morbid angels out there. Yeah. Now, and there's two venoms and two and tombs and, you know, there's just, uh, it's just so crazy to see that stuff and it's it's a testament to you guys that uh, you've stuck together through through thick and thin through all this stuff i think even if we were to stop doing seven dust which you know i mean i was just there with everyone everybody but clint and uh you know the enthusiasm is the same as it was when we were back in the record and trying to get a record deal so i look at that you know and i go okay you know, you can tell when you're kind of getting some BS from one of your band members and they're just kind of going through the motions and kind of doing, I mean, the fire is still there. The spark is still there. You know I mean? It's like, I think we've, we've gotten to the point where, you know, when we first started, we, well, of course, when you first start, you don't know what you're doing and you're sort of trying to figure out what kind of a band you are. I mean, we didn't even know what to call ourselves on the first record. And then the label starts to try to figure out, you know, what titles to give you. And then you start to get the bird in the ear and, you know, well, if you wrote a number one hit song and, you know, you focus on radio and you do that and the other thing, you know, it, you kind of listen a little bit for those first couple records. And now we're to the point where we're just like, let's just go make the best record that we can make. Um, and let's do it the seven us way. You know, if radio picks it up, great. If they don't, that's cool too. You know, I mean, I don't think Pantera Slayer or even Metallica, I mean, now, now you've got mandatory Metallica, so all bets are off on, as far as the radio goes. But they weren't a big radio band. You know what I mean? The, their first three records, that wasn't their objective. You know, I mean, if, if you know, it actually works out and we become a household name, then that's cool. But that's not the point. You know, I think for us, it, it's our comfort zone. It's, uh, it's what we enjoy doing. And, um, you know, we don't really have those conversations about radio. Radio is not something that we focus on. So you know, I guess we're doing it for the right reasons. Absolutely, man. And then the, uh, the, the newest album by projected, uh, ignite my insanity out now on Rat Pack records. Nice that you're uh, label mates with metal church. That's always a good day. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I know we, you, you've kind of, you've hinted on this on other people's shows, things like that, but I mean, are there any, any more concrete plans on trying to do some shows, do a little bit of touring here and there trying to get everybody's schedule on the same page? 
For sure. I mean, this year is going to get kind of crazy because, you know, October, November, December, we're going to be in, uh, in studio mode. And now it looks like Alter Bridge is basically going to be playing up through uh, the end of November, beginning of December. I think they've got another run they're going to be doing after they, they're doing the Royal Albert Hall um, symphony thing, which is going to be pretty awesome. But, you know, once December rolls around, I know Mark's going to move into Tremonti mode. So as long as I can kind of, you know, figure the E-Rock part of the equation, um, hopefully Seven Dust and Tremonti are going to be very, very close on schedules. And, um, you know, we've talked about doing a tour with, with those guys forever. So, you know, I might be wearing a bunch of hats next year, but I won't be wearing that. I'm in the middle of songwriting, you know, hat which would be good. You know, once we're in touring mode, I can just kind of focus on touring and not, you know, doing the back and forth. I mean, it's kind of crazy because it feels like we just finished writing, you know, the projector record and all of a sudden we're neck deep into writing the seven ups record. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think 2018 looks, uh, looks pretty interesting as far as touring for all of the available, you know, options. Um, you know, if seven dust is off, obviously I got Vinny off. Ultra Bridge will be off, so Scott will be available. So, you know, E-Rock will be the uh, the wild card. Would you do the Seven Dust Tremonti projected tour? Would you do the double duty? I'd sure give it a try. I mean, the hell, if, if we were going to do, you know, it wouldn't be just me doing double duty. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, it would <laughs> be the double duty tour. It would be the double duty tour, yeah. Because, uh, you know, it, I think the toughest thing about that would be E-Rock just having to go back to back, but we just have to divvy up vocal parts and make sure, you know, he wasn't wrecking his voice singing, you know, that long straight every night. But yeah, I mean, I'd love to give it a shot. Well, John, man, I appreciate you taking the time today and, uh, you know, good luck with everything projected. It's out now. And then uh, obviously, you know, when the new Seven Dust album rolls around, I will definitely push that as hard as I can too. Well, thank you very much. Man. I really appreciate it.
up, everybody? It's Tom Maxwell from Hell Yeah, and you're listening to Talk To Me. All right, guys, that was uh, that was projected, and uh, thanks for thanks to John Connolly for coming on the podcast. Huge Seven Dust fan, a huge fan of what of his work, and uh, I'm glad that he made the time to come on the Talk to Me podcast. And uh, we're still here with Mark Striegel, and we're we're just uh, we've just been talking while the interview is going on there for a minute. But uh, up in your up in your neck of the woods, I'm sure it happens because it yeah. happens down here too. But you'll get a get a touring package come through of uh, one or two bands, one or two main headlining bands, and then a local promoter will put on they'll put on 10, 15, 20 local bands, and then turn it into a quote unquote festival. And I can't stand these festivals, man. I can't stand looking at a lineup and not knowing anyone past like the third band on the bill. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I've seen this happen numerous times where they're, they're trying to say it's an, an all day music festival. And if, if it's an all day music festival, I need to have bands at the beginning, the middle and the end of the day that I actually know who they are. And I'm a big supporter of up and coming and the clubs a lot to see bands that aren't signed, but to, to try to sandwich these bands in a lineup with like one, two, maybe three other big bands and call it a festival. It's, it's just not a, a good idea. It's, it's the type of thing that makes me not want to go to these festivals the next time they throw them, you know? Um, so I, I do think, you know, just in general, sometimes promoters don't think of anything, but the, the, the current gig they're trying to pedal and, and, you know, they don't think long term about bringing people back to the next time they're they're doing a gig or a festival, if you will. And the customers, most of them are smart, anyways. You know, they they know enough to go and look at the entire lineup. And if they don't know a lot of these bands, they they they're they're probably not 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 going to go in the first place. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, even the 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 five or six band bill. I'll I'll try to work it out to where I I go to see the first band that I want to see and the rest of them. I'm, I I technically don't go out. I have kids. I have a family. I have a job. You know I don't have the time to just go to a to an all day festival on a Tuesday. You know I don't have that uh, right. have the have the the wherewithal to just go and 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 sit through. You know, no offense, but like you know thirty local bands that are probably local bands for a reason and. You know, one of these days, if one of those bands break through and they get through and 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 do all the stuff that they have to, and you know, get the right uh, get the right push behind them and all that stuff, yes, I will hear about them then. But uh, I don't necessarily have the time right now. And I think that sounds. I mean, I think that's more of an age thing than than uh, than like an elitist thing. But uh, but you know, I'll hear about them eventually um, if they, I guess, make the grade. Yeah. I- you know, I don't know if it's an age thing because I remember, I mean, I'm well into my 40s. I mean, I'm 47 years old. So it's like I remember being a 20 something, though. And and even back in those days in, in New York City, before, long, long before I had kids, you know, I always had a day job. I'm not somebody who who didn't ever have to get up for for work in the morning but even in those days like that that would drive me nuts when they would they put bands on super super late and you know just just force people to hang out all night listening to these bands other local bands or bands unknown bands that, that, that they're not there to see just to finally get to hear the one the one act that they want to see and i i always think they do that 
because they want people spending more money at the bar. I mean, I yeah. think that's their their whole idea. But I would gladly pay way more for a ticket knowing that the band's going to go on promptly at, at 9 o'clock, you know, and, and be over by 11. Um, but, yeah, I doubt that'll ever happen. Well, I saw, like, a, kind of back to these festivals with, with 30 opening bands, 30 local opening bands. That, right, yeah. Um, the... the I saw a festival, quote unquote festival, somewhere in Ohio, and it was headlined by Nonpoint. And Nonpoint has been on the show a few times. A few of the members have been on. I, I enjoy that band. I will go see them anytime they come through town. They are not a festival headlining band, like at any level. And yeah. and so it's right. it's you know you get Nonpoint and then thirty opening bands. It's just, I don't understand the logic there. It's and I understand that you get. We'll, we'll say 20 low, you know, 20 opening bands and the more tickets you sell, the higher up in the bill you get, uh, you know, it, it's all, it's all about, you know, the opening bands selling the tickets. It's not like any of those guys are getting paid. And then I guess, I right. guess the payoff for them is they can say on their bio that they opened for non-point one time. Like it's, I, I don't really see the payoff on either side other than the financial so payoff, you, I guess. Do you think those bands are like a pay-to-play thing like do they have to get on the bill and guarantee that they're gonna sell all x amount of tickets like i i just remember when i used to play in bands there were in clubs where they would make us buy tickets in event you know yeah there was a couple of examples in the article that i'm i'm, I'm let me let me pull it up to uh to give credit where credit is due that i'm not just coming up with this it's called uh hey promoters stop doing this bullshit <laughs> it's on a right. toilet of evil or toilet of hell.com toilet ov hell.com yeah hey promoters stop doing this bullshit um the the one thing that they had on there was was like a uh if you the more tickets your band sells the higher up on the bill you get to be so there was there was that ploy uh, okay. um i mean i'm sure that there's there's you know if you want to be on this bill you know on this bill you have to buy you know 20 tickets, 40 tickets, how many ever tickets and sell them to your friends, stuff like that. Uh, you know, financially, maybe for the promoter, it's a good deal. But outside of that, there's, there's no, nobody's gaining anything. The fans aren't, the bands aren't, the headlining bands definitely aren't because they're, uh, you know, local bands are, are not very respectful of anyone's time when it comes to set up, get on, right. you know, set up, play, play time. You know, if you're supposed to play for 12 to 1230, and then the guy plays twelve to twelve thirty-five, and then that pushes you know the next band back five minutes, and they play five minutes too long. So I mean, the headlining band's not playing totally. until midnight. I mean, it's just a mess, and uh, I, I see no no uh, no uh, what is it uh, value in any of this stuff. No, definitely not. I mean, it would make a lot more sense for again for the main headline band that is the draw to just you know, play a, play a solo date and <laughs> charge more for the tickets and, you know, go on at a set time. So in decent hour, I mean, I, I don't know, instead of try to pull it off a festival, but I'm sure the band, the big headlining band probably has no say in it. They probably get a flat fee and yeah. they're booked and, and however the promoter wants to uh, package it, I'm sure they can, you know. I think that being able to open open for the national act coming through town should be like a like a reward for all the hard work, all the local shows you've played, all of the the flyering, all of the promotion that you've done, um, building an, a strong audience. And when you know, say say Nonpoint comes through, it's Nonpoint, the one or two bands that's on the tour, and you're the the biggest 
local band in town, you know, and then that, that show, that's like a, like a badge of honor for that band to be able to open that, not non-point, the two bands on the tour and 30 local bands that are all just buying on the, on the bill. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. But, uh, we'll, we'll get it back around to some other stuff. Um, what's the, what's in the works for talking metal? I know you've kind of talked about a, a a new website. Um, you know, we've, we kind of talk about the, uh, you know, the future of all of this stuff and trying to, uh, I guess, corner the market in, in any way you can. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think it's it's very hard to to make money uh, simply podcasting, and I've really come to terms with that. I mean, in between uh, when the interview was going on, you and I were were talking about you know it takes I really think it takes about fifteen thousand downloads per every episode to really start to get bigger advertisers mm-hmm. involved in a show. Oh, and that's that's very tough. I mean, people are like, "Well, couldn't you get that if you expanded and started including more bands and different genres of bands?" But I'm from the mindset where I'm doing this because I like doing it, and I like I want to do it about bands that I like. And I think eighty to ninety percent of the bands that I have on my show are bands that I'm legitimately interested in. I will say that there's that ten percent where the promoters twist my arm to get them on, (laughs) or dangle another band in front of my my, you know, salivating mouth and say, "Okay, you can have them, but you also have to do that these guys," you know. And and so, I do get pulled into that a little bit, but not much, not much. And so I don't think Talking Metal is ever going to get to that level where where we're just doing gangbusters, um, you know, and able to really make money off of the actual podcast. And I've come to terms with that. And would it be great if that could happen? Sure. Do I, do I try to monetize it when I can? Yes. Uh, if advertisers come to me or there's anything I can do, I pin my Amazon links, my PayPal donation, the Patreon, all that stuff is, is, is stuff that I do, but it's, you know, it's really a hobby, the, the talking metal podcast at this point, but I am kind of definitely thinking about launch tentative plans to, to do, do a site that is more than just podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can, could potentially have video content, news content, reviews, uh, you know, and, and a staff of people providing these uh, these pieces of, of media and content. So I'm, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head about around that, but I'm tentatively, uh, hopefully going to at least start that whole process this fall sometime. So I'll definitely keep you posted and we would love to have you involved in, in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one, the one thing that you know you kind of brought up there is monetizing in any any way that you can, and and I've actually um, a, a few different podcasts are kind of coming out and talking about like uh, kind of anti the the monetization of the podcasts, and and I I always go back to why aren't we making money? I mean, there there are I definitely don't get fifteen thousand downloads an episode, but but I but we all create a good product that people look forward to weekly and you know right i don't i don't understand why it's such a bad word to to you know want to make a couple of bucks for this or even just you know cover the expenses of this um 
I did, I did pretty well at the, at the Rock and Pod Expo with T-shirts. Uh, people came by that listened cool. to the podcast. You know, bought a twenty dollars T-shirt. Uh, you know, I think they made us some buttons up there, and they made a few bucks off of those. Um, you know, same with that the the Patreon, the PayPal, uh, little stuff here and there. But uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see the the evilness, I guess, in the in the uh, wanting to you know make a few bucks off of this. If if, if we're entertaining people, then you know that's got to be worth something to somebody. Oh, I I agree, I agree, and I think. Being that we are independent podcasts, that it, it just it it and we work day jobs and we have families and we don't have a staff of ad sales guys working with us. I think that really, um, you know, diminishes our chances to to make a profit. And, and you know, as as much as as corporate America gets gets attacked by people, there is some. Something to be said that when you have this team of people working with you and helping you produce the content and uh, selling ad ad time for you and and helping you on the production end and promoting, promoting, promoting. I mean, promotion is so important, but promotion takes if you really want to promote properly, you need you need a budget to do it. So, you know, it's like there's that there there's. I don't know if I'm really, you know, if I'm going off on a tangent here, but it, it does take an enormous risk. And and I feel like I've never been a that big of a risk taker mm-hmm. where I'm going to go borrow a bunch of money uh, to promote the Talking Metal podcast and, you know, invest, get investors and take out loans to, to push it. But when you look at people who launch successful websites uh, a lot of a lot of times that's, that's what they're doing and there's there's a enormous risk involved um but does you know that would probably take the fun out of it for me so uh, you know I, I don't know i don't know I, i'd like to think that maybe as podcasts continue to grow and the popularity of podcasts go up which Right now, we're really seeing this this boom of of more people coming in and and listening to podcasts than ever before in the mm-hmm. history of podcasting. You know, the podcast listenership has has grown just in the last three years more than it has in the previous you know four, 13, 14 years. Uh, so so maybe maybe there is a chance that that it, at some point our listeners will care enough about the content that we're providing them and they will uh support us uh by using our amazon links by by you know joining our patreon accounts and you know so i don't know we'll have to see what the future holds where it goes but uh, you know right now i do think it's tough but you know i'm encouraged by how popular podcasts are are becoming it, you know, and the flip side of that is then there is always the corporate companies with money, the mm-hmm. podcast ones and whatever that, that come in there and, and kind of suck the air out of the room because they have money behind them. But, you know, I, I don't know what the future holds, but I do think, uh, it, it's tough to be independent, uh, and, and make money for sure. But yeah. again, the best thing your listeners can do is just, really try to support you and and show you that love and and do your patreon or and your sponsored stuff that you're you're uh 
you're pimping. I mean, it's really important to support the, the shows that you love. Well, I think too, and kind of getting back to the, the website thing, I think that that's kind of where everybody needs to go with this stuff. I think, I think the website's where it's at. I think that there's, and I, if I, if I remember correctly on the, on the, um, the podcaster summit that we did on the classic metal show, you and I kind of went back and forth about blabber. Or I'm not going to call it a, we'll call him a Maber Blouth. <laughs> and, right. uh, and you know, those guys will pick up a, 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 you know, a blurb from the show and they'll run it, they'll run it on their show. And then, you know, obviously my download numbers shoot through the roof when they do that. But, but sure. you, you got to think that their clicks and their, their click, their paid clicks on, you know, on their website, Probably get uh, you know ten times the amount of any any actual uh, you know listening to the the podcast. You know people go to the bla- you know go to uh, go to blabbermouth and they'll they'll read uh, they'll read the articles, but they'll look at the advertising while they're there. They may or may not actually click on the episode and hear the audio. So I mean you know that even uh, as much as I love when they they take and take a snippet of the show, I know that they're they're the ones uh, you know profiting off of it. monetizing not yeah, off of yeah. So. Off of what you do, yeah. Which, which you know, um, again, that website appears to be connected to big corporate money. I mean, isn't doesn't Atlantic Records own it? You know, so who knows, like, how much money they're even making off of it? It's like when it's part of this bigger company, you know, that that it it might it, it's all kind of a wash yeah. at the end of the day. And you know, I give this example where. Uh, you know, I worked at, at a, a small TV station for a number of years called IFC, and yeah, yeah. it it no one watches IFC. I mean, it, you know, when I say obviously people watch it, but not a lot of people. But it was owned by AMC. So what they would do is like, oh, okay, you want to advertise on The Walking Dead uh, for a million dollars um, for a season? Well, you can also advertise uh, on IFC for. for one point IFC Sundance and, you know, we for, for 1.1 million, you know, there's, they, they, so even though IFC isn't really profitable on its own, and I'm not saying that this is how things are, is how things work with Blabbermouth, but it could be, uh, even though it's not profitable on its own, when it's part of this big corporate structure, it's able to, to, to survive. Whereas if it were independent, there's no way it would, you know? So I I don't know, you know, it's, uh, it, it should be interesting, I think in the future to see how many other big players get involved with, with podcasts and start throwing money at it. And it also should be interesting to see, you know, how, how the listeners step it up and if they realize, you know, that they the, that we put our time and our effort and our money into this this stuff. And, uh, you know, will they will they uh, help us out in, in supporting our, our cause? I, I hope they do. Yeah, and I definitely, uh, you know, I'll, I will continue to do this for free. I think it's fun. I think it's a, an outlet. Um, I, I always kind of called it like my solo band because you can, you know, you have right. complete control of it. You can, uh, you know, I can sit down here and do it and edit and, and put all the little bells and whistles in it and stuff like that. I enjoy doing it. I'm not, I'm never, I didn't get into this for any kind of money. Um, but at the same time, if somebody wants to give me a couple of bucks, they're more than happy. That's kind of where I am with it. And, you know, back to Blabbermouth, I, I don't think that, um, uh, 
you know, like Bory and the guys over there at Blabbermouth. I mean, I've been reading Bory stuff since I was a kid, like when he was in Metal Maniacs and right. stuff like that. So, I mean, I know he's coming from the right place too. It's not uh, a bunch of corporate totally. suits, you know, sitting in, a, in an office somewhere, um, you know, trying to trying to make uh, metal headlines. You know, I think, uh, you know, he's been doing this way longer than the internet was around type stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, he's definitely got a talent for some great headlines and for picking some great stories. And, and, uh, you know, I, I just, I'm just always curious about, about sites and magazines and TV shows and just media outlets in, in general, because sometimes there's, there's a bigger picture when it comes to, uh, how, how they're, how they're making money. I mean, I have no idea how a loud wire is a big curiosity to me. Cause here's this, mm. this website that doesn't really do that much. I mean, they, they look good and they, they put some nice little video packages together there, but they're, it's a mystery because they have this like midtown Manhattan office space, an entire staff of people. It's, mm. I can't imagine that, that they make enough money to, to, make make a profit but yeah. uh, you know I, I i don't know so there's yeah a but, lot of, it, a lot of mysteries <laughs> out there and they fall into that category of like their podcasts i don't think they sound very good uh you know they're they're right. the loud wire podcast i could kind of go either way with when revolver had their podcast that thing sounded like yeah. garbage i'm like how are these right. major companies you know putting out like letting some of the stuff slip by and being able to put out uh some of the some of this nonsense yeah don't know. Don't know. <laughs> well, you get no nonsense here with uh, talking metal. So, uh, just well, as we wrap it up, just let everybody know. Uh, it, I'm sure if they already listen to my show, they know all about you. But uh, the you know the nice plug at the end here. Yeah. So there, there's the podcast, which I do three of them right now. The main one, of course, uh, is talking metal, which I've been doing since 2005. Then I have metal raps, which. Um, we're really only doing about one or two episodes a month, but that's with Mitch Joel, who is this brilliant, uh, internet marketer, Ted talks guy. And he's a, a lover of hard rock music, the, the classic stuff like I love. And also Mitch LaFon, who people know from, from his podcast and he was part of three sides of the coin for, for a long time. So I do that with them. That's always great fun. It's called metal raps. And then, um, a show that I've been doing kind of on the side for a long time, Talking Rock, and we're kind of rebooting that now. And I'm working with Joey Haney from the Rock Strikes 10 podcast on on the Talking Rock podcast. Yeah, so so definitely check out Talking Metal, but also Metal Raps and Talking Rock. They're all up on TalkingMetal.com and, of course, iTunes and all your regular podcasting outlets. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark, man, thanks for uh, thanks for stepping in John's shoes. Yeah, well, I hope he uh, gets some some hot tea, right? Hot tea with lemon, isn't that brings your voice back? <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so for the Talk to Me podcast, I am Joshua Toomey, and we will talk to you next Thursday.